tests us for life and godliness. Thank you for the way that it, it shapes and molds us, not only from the outside, the things that we give ourselves to, but from the inside, the things that our hearts desire and that they crave. Lord, thank you for the comprehensive work of the gospel. That you lived and you died. You're raised again. You're ascended and seated on high, now interceding for us. Thank you for the comprehensive work of the gospel. Thank you for the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as believers. Father, we need all of those things this morning to understand your word. And you provide so richly. In Jesus' name, help us to receive. Amen. Amen. You know, last Sunday we were looking at Hosea chapter 12. And what we were talking about was, it is by the grace of God alone that you are where you are in life right now. And I I recognize something very sobering about that. That there are many of us that are facing circumstances in life that are difficult. It's, it's what Darren was talking about during that time of ministry. It's what Megan was talking about in the scripture that she, re, that she read for us. And as, as the Lord is ministering to our hearts, it's this reminder of that God sees us. He knows what we're walking through. And yet in the midst of that, he's saying, I am still pouring out my grace on you. That's amazing. It's, it's hard for us to fathom. And, and here's why I know that it's hard for us to fathom. Several of you wrote me. That after years of following the Lord, the things that I was preaching about last Sunday were just beginning to make sense to you. I was struck by that. I was struck by that because, one, it reminds us that God is real and he's in us, and yet he reveals himself to us over time. That there are things that you may be walking through right now that are a part of that revelation to you. That that there are things that you can look forward to and, and, and though it may look different than in the natural eyes, what you thought it would look like, that God will meet you in that moment. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? His grace is amazing to us. And that's kind of where we left off last Sunday, that we want to be amazed again by the grace of God. But there's a, there's a flip side to that equation as well. It is by grace alone that you are at the place in life that you are right now. It's by God's grace alone. And it's not by your works. And that's what Hosea chapter 13 takes a look at. Before we dive into the word this morning, though, I just want to briefly address that idea of believers who are beginning to grasp these things. I had no less than about 10 folks write. That, that's an unusual number of people to respond and to reach out and to give some kind of feedback especially related to, I'm just beginning to grasp what you were talking about. And my thought in the midst of that moment was, I wish, I wish others in the church could hear this as well. I wish that others could, could hear this story. And I love something that Eddie did in our men's meeting yesterday. He said at the end of the meeting, he just wanted to have a few moments for everybody to just share a, a praise report of what God was doing. A, a God story, good news. Something that we were seeing, that this is God supernaturally moving. And it was this wonderful time of sharing. And and I think testimonies are something that we should give our time to. But can we talk about something that I feel like we should talk about more in the church? And that's discipleship. And what I want to be careful of here is to say, young people go to old people and let them tell you how to live your life. That's not biblical. But when I hear... Mature believers 
maturing in their faith even still and saying, I'm just beginning to get it. No matter where you are in your faith journey, no matter where you are in the number of years you've been serving the Lord, it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years, it could be decades. We need to hear that from one another, don't we? We need to hear those moments where, where we begin to get it. And I think that what we have is this understanding of discipleship where it's, it's, this, it's legalism light. It's one-on-one legalism, not from the pulpit. So I get to preach grace, and you get to be legalistic in your discipleship relationships. That would be a wrong way to understand discipleship. Because discipleship is not being discipled in someone else's ways. Discipleship is being trained in Christ's ways. And here is where we begin to face an issue. I came across a report late last year from Barna Research. If you don't know, that's a... Uh, a fairly comprehensive research organization that does a number of, of studies throughout the church throughout the year. They, they can have very helpful information, but one of the things that they said was that there is about 83% of the church that are not involved in discipleship because of two reasons. 37% said, I don't think I'm qualified or equipped. 24% said, no one has suggested it or asked me. said I just haven't thought about it. Let me help with all three. Number one, I don't think I'm qualified or equipped. I feel that way at times. I know that moment. I received a text a few weeks ago from a member, and I'm not going to name Jay Lewis, but he texted me and said, is this parenting thing happening tonight? No, that's what we've pivoted over to the series coming up. He said, well, I'll wait then to be a good parent. <laughs> For Nevaeh and Jaden's sake, brother, don't do that. So what I replied to him was, J. Lewis, you have the spirit of the living God inside of you and you have his word. You have everything you need to get to being a good parent. See, I... I'm picking on Jay because he's a friend and I know that I can. But I'm afraid that we have that mentality of, I should go through some type of a training. I'm not certified as a disciple maker. You're qualified by Christ's work on your behalf. You're equipped through his word. Perhaps get in there more. You can start today in about 45 minutes. You can start today. You can be equipped for everything that you need. No one has suggested or asked me. I'm suggesting that you get into discipleship relationships. Would you please do so? All right, so that's two down. I haven't thought about it. I pray that you're doing so now. That should cover about 83% of the church's excuses to not be involved in discipleship. May we be strengthened as a church by the call of Christ on us to be followers and being disciples who disciple others. If you don't feel like you have it to give away, get it from someone else. If you feel like you're about to burst like Danny was when he just wanted to shout at all of us at the end of worship, I don't know, ask him. Apparently he's going to give out his phone number, I heard. Let's be a church that doesn't, that doesn't go into 
the 3% that said because of past hurtful experiences. Not your words or your ways, by his spirit, by his word. That's how we disciple one another. Let's not perpetuate hurt and harm that can and has happened in the church. There are a variety of other reasons that make up the remainder of the percentage. Quick math is not coming to mind at the moment, but let's get into Hosea chapter 13 together. Beginning in verse 1, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they send more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like the smoke from the window." You know, as we begin to dive into this, you may hear some themes that are very similar. Perhaps you were here for our Ecclesiastes series a few years ago, and when you hear smoke and vapor, you realize that there are, there's a language there that is prophetic. It reminds us that this life is but a mist, it's but a, but a vapor. It is here today, and it is quickly gone. But in light of eternity, these moments that we live are but a breath. There is sobering language in that, isn't there? It should cause us to do what the psalmist tells us to. He says, teach us to number our days that we may grow in a heart of wisdom. But we we come across some language here where it's talking about Ephraim. and, And we've talked about that. We've talked about idolatry a number of different ways before. But in this passage, it says that when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. There's there's something about the words of Ephraim. And a few different times, we've had to kind of look at the significance of this particular tribe of the people of Israel. Last week I mentioned that Genesis chapters 25 through about 49, you see Israel's story. It starts with Jacob and then he's renamed as Israel. But we come to this place at the end of Genesis chapter 48. You don't need to turn there. But it, it, let me just highlight two verses. It says this in Genesis 48, verse 19. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offering shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day by saying, You, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So what do we see happening here? We see that Ephraim actually holds a significant, unique place in the people of God. Ephraim has this place where they are kind of, they they are... One of Israel's most important tribes, and that's according to the the blessing that Jacob is giving in Genesis chapter 48. Now this would be quite a surprise. It would be quite a surprise for a lesser tribe to be given a greater blessing. It would be quite a surprise for a second son in that day to be given an inheritance of first importance. And so we realize that there is something about Ephraim that is special and powerful. When they speak, there is thunder. That's not literal language. It's, it's speaking of their importance in the life and in the, in the people of God that make up the nation of Israel. And this represents this tribe, but they had turned to idolatry. They had turned to idolatry. And in the midst of doing that, there was a death that comes upon them just as when 
Adam had eaten the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. So we see the continuation of this, this account. And in the midst of this account, there are some regularly recurring themes. It's important for us to understand that so that as we get into this kind of uh, prophetic language from the prophet Hosea over the people of God, we rightly understand what is said because some of the language is very difficult. Some of it's actually very hard to receive from. But what we begin to recognize is Israel has an attitude problem. Yes, they have idolatry. Yes, they're giving themselves over to other things. But what is feeding that? An attitude that they have. An attitude, as we'll come back to at the close, of ingratitude. Let's actually look as we continue in verse 4 at how this ingratitude expressed itself. But I am the Lord your God, Hosea 13.4 says. I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God beside me. Beside me there's no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. When they had grazed, they became full They were filled and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them and bear, like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts and I will devour them like a lion. As a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel. For you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? Now this is where we're going to spend the, no pun intended, lion's share of our time today. This is where we're going to kind of delve in to understand This attitude of ingratitude, how did it express itself in Israel's day? And what can we learn from that as followers of Jesus today? What are the things that God would have for us? Well, I think we should start by asking the question, how does our culture do today in terms of gratitude? Like if you had to scale them, you know, zero to ten. Ten being the best. Zero being the worst. Where would they land? I'm guessing for most of us, we like to think that what we express to others is at least above a five. Oh, but what we receive from others, well, that's below a five. We love grading on a curve when it comes to ourselves, don't we? But when we think about our culture today, we have to ask some questions. Like, what would our culture say about our ability to provide for ourselves? And you begin to realize, wait a minute, that that seems like it's disconnected from gratitude, not according to God's word. How can you provide for yourself? What, What about your ability to protect your family, to ensure your wealth or your belongings? Now this is certainly not a a message against security. This is not a message against locking your door at night. This is not a message about putting yourself in some sort of unnecessary danger. This is not a, a message about not managing your affairs in a shrewd or financially healthy way. This is a message about disconnecting your hope from those things. Tonight when we watch the Super Bowl, I don't know what the commercials are because I don't like watching them ahead of time. I like shushing my family. And trying to hear it over the, the noise that will be happening. That's, that's a joy to me. 
I don't know what the commercials will be about, but I know what some of them will do. They will try to speak to fears in my heart or in my mind. They will try to speak to those things. And then I'm going to sell you the solution. How about insurance? I heard a commercial the other day, and I'm not well-versed in these things. I'm not, again, trying to make some kind of financial statement, but it was this thing of, like, identity theft. Oh, okay, now you got my attention. Identity theft is a real crime. It's a serious thing, Jim. And in the midst of talking about identity theft, they said the protection that you may have is not enough. Because what if somebody has already sold your home title without you knowing about it? New fear unlocked! What am I supposed to do with this? Where did we put the title? And you realize they are speaking to a fear that's going on in our heart. Sometimes they're creating it. And then they're going to sell you the solution for X number of dollars a month. How do we do in terms of providing for ourselves, protecting our family, ensuring our wealth, ensuring that our belongings remains our own? I wonder, the reason I'm asking these questions is I wonder how many of us consider the the truth of this from God's Word. Throughout God's Word, it testifies to this, that prosperity can be a more dangerous test for our souls than adversity is. Prosperity can be a more dangerous test for our souls than adversity is. See, in this passage, God says that he would be like a hungry lion. He would be like a stalking leopard, a fuming bear. That this, this phrase, like, comes up 17 different times in chapters 13 and 14. Ephraim would become like the clouds, like the dew, like the chaff, like the smoke. Do you hear the, the, the juxtaposition between those two things? We are momentary, and he is on the prowl in judgment. Now here's the, the challenge of what I just said. It's not disconnected from the God that we were worshiping just a few moments ago that wanted us to hear that love is the final word. But the fact that he has saved us through Jesus Christ from his judgment should really keep our attitude in check. It should really keep our attitude in check. It should really kind of help our understanding of what we put our hopes into and then how that gets expressed through our lives. He says in here, in these verses, that he is the one who has saved them from Egypt. He can very easily save them from Assyria. But what they're putting their trust in is in their wealth, in their kings, and in their foreign policy. All of a sudden, this begins to sound like the headlines of the day, doesn't it? How many balloons does China have? The FAA closed airspace? Crypto is up or down? FTX is a Ponzi scheme? What are you putting your hope and your trust in? Begins to speak to the headlines of the day. They were, they were filled with material, and what that began to fill them with was so much more dangerous was pride began to fill them with pride. In Proverbs 30, 
Agurah prayed that he wouldn't be so full as to deny the Lord, nor be so poor that he would be tempted to steal. What is he praying? He's praying that he would be hemmed in to the ways of God. In Deuteronomy 32, 15, Jeserun, that's Israel, the upright one, grew fat or prosperous and kicked like an animal kicks, referring to kicking against the Lord. You grew fat, you grew thick, you grew obese, and then what happens as a result? You forsake the God that made you, the God that provides you. You know that even among Christians, a lot of money seems to make people ungrateful and make them feel like they deserve something. I think it shows that we can tend to think too much of ourselves. That we don't pay enough attention to the gifts, to the grace, to the good blessing in our lives that have their source, not in our efforts, but in the grace of God alone. And we begin to understand why it is that that the prophet is speaking on behalf of God to the people of God, and he's saying, it is by your grace that you are where you are, and it is not by your works. Because if you think that it's by your efforts, it's not grace. If you think it's by your efforts, if you think it's by your works, you think it's by your possession, your bank account, insert what you think is wealth here. It's going to actually increase your pride and your arrogance. And your attitude will reflect that of Israel's of ingratitude. He humbles the strong and he strengthens the weak. And that's a lesson that he continues to speak to his church today. Well, what are some of the blockers of gratitude? In this pride, how does it express itself? Well, it can express itself as envy. It can express itself as envy. Something that can prevent us from experience. Gratitude is not just pride, but it would be an envy. It would say that I am begrudging of others because of what they have. Rather than being content and grateful for what I have. What, what am I looking at myself then as? I'm looking at myself as a consumer, not a servant of God. We're called to be servants, not consumers. So envy can be a real mark of pride, and it can be something that blocks our gratitude before the Lord. Scripture commands us not to covet anything that belongs to our neighbor. Possessions, work, salary, opportunities, bank balances. But what we are to do is to develop, we are to cultivate, we are to steward a gratitude for what we've been given. Israel had forgotten. They had become unconcerned about their God. And that's a warning for us today. What what is something else that might be a blocker against gratitude? How about political prosperity? If I take a moment today to speak about politics, I recognize, one, that's unusual for me. And it's dangerous for all of us. Because what we begin to do is we begin to listen for something rather than listening to the Word of God. Which party am I going to highlight? Which party am I going to correct? Is Chris a libertarian? I don't know or care anymore. I want to be a servant of Christ. See, it's easy for us to look at Israel and think, man, they were in rough shape. Think about the tough times that they were in. Well, that would be a wrong understanding of the historical context of the nation of Israel. Israel was prospering. Israel had kings. We have rulers. We have foreign relations. 
We have nations we can call on, not God. I think about it like this. My kids, when they were younger, when we would be getting ready to go into, let's just say a grocery store, what, what is the first thing that I'm going to do if they're about two or three? I'm going to sit with them and I'm going to say, okay, when we go into the store, here's what I expect. I want to train them. I want to equip them in that moment. I want to say, hey, this is what we're looking for in here. Like not throwing random stuff in the cart that I find out in front of mom at home that you put in there. <laughs> parents, see, that's parents laughing right there, right? If you're a young couple and you are looking forward to children, let me, call, let me tell you what that laugh that you just heard is called. It's called the I told you so laugh. Okay, because parents knew, know exactly what I'm talking about. Something gets thrown in the cart and you don't see it until you get home and you're just like, now I'm in trouble too. So what do we do? We, we, we train. Here's the expectation as we go into the store, don't throw random stuff into the cart. The phrase that I use with my kids when they were younger is, if you don't have self-control, I'll step in and have it for you. Right? I want to train them in the fruit of the Spirit. I want to use biblical language. If you don't have self-control, I'll step in and have it for you. And we had to work through those things. And they began to understand there was this trust that I'm working to build with them. I I want you to hear from me. I actually have your best interest in mind. I want you to hear from me and I want you to respond. And if you don't, then there's going to be consequences for that when we get home. Okay. I think that's healthy to understand. Do you know that's what God was doing with Israel? But what they demanded, they threw a temper tantrum in the middle of the store and said, I need a king right now. And almost as a parent that says, okay, I'm going to give you exactly what you ask for. God gives them a king. And this is not God caving on his sovereignty. This is God training us as his children. They have a king, and you know what's not going to help you is a king when God is the one who is your enemy. Now, let me play it out a little bit more, just for fun. Let's talk politics. Politics has become, I believe, too much a part of our lives. Appreciate that. This week, the president delivered the State of the Union speech, and I was taking note of all of the political rigor around that. You know what was unique about that? It was no more or less vile than normal. See, that used to be a a moment on the country's calendar, and now the political rigor around it sounds the same as any other day. It's not like it peaked. It's not like it went through some kind of valley. Politics has become too much a part of our lives. If I stop and take note for a moment, I think about like, there was nobody that was more intense or more passive. There was nobody that was more passionate or dispassionate than any other day of the week, month, or year. Now I might look to the Constitution or some of our ruling documents and just think, you know, was it supposed to be this way? Was the executive or the legislative or the judicial branches supposed to have this kind of day-to-day impact on my life? I don't believe that's the case. I mean, I could, I could sit there and say, I'll blame the media. They're an easy target. How about I blame our hearts for just a second? 
1960, 5% of Republicans and 4% of Democrats would, would say this. I would be displeased if a child married an individual of a different political persuasion. 5% Republican, 4% Democrat. You think that number is the same? It is not. There's more than a third of families in this country today that would say if they chose, now I want you to hear me, I want you to hear my heart, I want your heart to be broken like mine is, if their child chose a spouse of a different political persuasion, that would have a greater disappointing effect on them as a parent than if they chose a different religion. Church, our hearts might be in the wrong place. God help us. Yeah. The political agendas of the Republican and the Democratic parties have changed since 1960 as well. And you know what that is? Gross. There are vile things that our politicians spend time on that are unnecessary for my daily life. But if I think that taking up my cross daily to follow him is making sure I don't miss that show about my political persuasion, I'm misunderstanding that passage. Let's look to Christ. See, verse 6 in Hosea chapter 13 contrasts something that we read last week. Last week it said that they feed on the wind. This week it says, in their heart they had grazed and when they became full they were filled and their heart was lifted up and then they forgot God. Have politics become God in our lives? Now you may think like, isn't God sovereign to stop this? Isn't he the one that can help us to learn the right lessons from history instead of the wrong lessons from history? Kelly, yesterday in our men's meeting, he did this great job of embarrassing all of us in our knowledge of history by putting a timeline up and then giving us all these blank dates and saying, guess what date that was? My team lost. I feel like we all kind of lost a little bit of our pride when it came to this. You know what I realized in that moment? I, watch, I consume a lot of documentaries. I don't retain them. May it not be so for us as a church with the word of God. That we consume a lot of things of God, but we don't retain them. See, that's what I'm getting at today. So it's not about uh, a Republican or Democrat or anything like that. It's about our hearts before the living God. I'm using these stats not to say that one party is right or another. I'm saying, don't put your dependence on the king. No matter who it is. Also, give us better options. Please, Lord Jesus, amen. <laughs> that was me. That was me. I mean everywhere, give us better options. Jesus, help us. How dangerous it is if my heart toward God's word is that I consume without retaining. See, that's what's happening with the Israelites. Their prosperity came from their own efforts and it led to this self-confidence. It led to this self-reliance. And all the time, what God is looking for from his people is a heartfelt thanks to him for his provision for them. 
Let me summarize this section on gratitude. Any success that I've ever experienced in commerce, any beauty in the home or the family that I have, anything that comes to my children's successes, I think any of us would be tempted to claim credit for those things. How many of us have have had that moment where we prayed for something, maybe an interview, an exam, a project, or evangelism, and when it comes to fruition and it seems successful in the world's eyes, rather than seeing it as an answered prayer, what do we do? We chalk it up to our own effort and skill. It's robbing God of his glory in that moment. Our own efforts will fail. Human kings or rulers can be a disappointment. A human king can't protect us when God himself is the enemy. The Westminster Confession in in the third chapter starts out this way. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So if he's not sovereign over all things, then Wouldn't he not be God over all? And yet the confession continues. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Got it? All right, let me me, uh, read you R.C. Sproul's summary of that. By God ordaining all things, he does it in such a way that doesn't annihilate human decisions or forces of nature. Yet at the same time, the sovereign God stands over every human event. Do not rob him of his glory. So yes, God does in a way allow tragedies or calamities. I remember at a time after a major car accident, a friend asked me, do you believe that this was an accident or do you believe that this was God's on purpose for you? I hated that question exactly what I needed to hear see even if that ordination is mere permission for God to let things happen he is choosing to allow them but this is where we must be so careful we must be so humble in our approach with one another is because we shouldn't be offering the reason he ordained it especially if we don't know I think this especially speaks to punditry. I think this speaks to talking heads even in the church where they call things that happen judgment of God on a people or a nation. We must be humble church before a holy God. But what about the wrongs that happen to people? Hosea wants to point our attention to this. It's not that God is indifferent. It's not as if he has failed to notice what's happening. Their sin is being stored up. Their sin is being stored up. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 2. The delay of God's judgment is not a sign of his neglect or his indifference. Rather, they are the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. This is why we can pray for our enemies. Lord, help them respond to you. God's ways and his wisdom, his skills, his creativity, they are not limited. They are perfect with every individual, every creature, with nature. 
within the unseen realm all together at the same time and all the time. God is sovereign. If there's something that we know from the witness of Scripture is that he uses good and evil to accomplish his purposes. I don't understand that. That's God's ways. Let's be reminded that the worst evil that man ever did was ordained by God himself. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 reminds us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Where we crucified and killed the perfect one through the hands of lawless men. Verse 24 says that God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Christ to be held by them. So let me ask you a question this morning. What gives you that kind of confidence for the future? Think carefully before you answer because your answer may actually help us understand what you're putting your effort and your trust in. Trust in the grace of God. And don't come to the ruin that we read of for the people of Israel. Let's continue to read. Hosea chapter 13 verse 11. I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth came for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall, build, shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. These are difficult words to hear. But they represent the fullness of of the judgment and the wrath of God. They're sobering words. But Paul helps us understand them when he gives us some, some commentary on them. In 1 Corinthians 15. Especially when it comes to verse 14. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that death's victory and sting is nowhere. It's a rhetorical question. Where is your sting? Perhaps you've been at a, a funeral or memorial service and you've heard those words before. Paul says that nowhere is death's victory and sting. Death has no victory. It has no steam to keep moving forward. So what is the sting of death? Paul tells us that it's sin. See, that, that, that can be difficult for us to wrap our mind around if we think that death is the final outcome. But Paul tells us that sin is the sting of death. He wants us to understand that there's actually something worse than a physical death that we can face, that we can experience. And what is worse than that? Spiritual death. 
Because spiritual death leads to eternal separation from God himself. These words are sobering, but they're not filled without hope and an opportunity to return. See, both Christians and unbelievers, we will all experience a physical form of death, but there is a judgment waiting for those who are also spiritually separated from God. So put all of your hope in all of your efforts and and, and the joys of this earth will be the closest you'll ever come to heaven. If that's what you decide, you know what? I'm going to just build up those treasures for myself. I'm going to ensure everything out the wazoo. I'm going, to, I'm going to do everything that I can to protect this. Then guess what? That will be the closest you ever experience to heaven is on this earth because there's a hell waiting for you for eternity. But if you put all of your hopes in Christ as your Savior, if you recognize that you are where you are, that you are who you are, that you have what you have, all by the grace of God alone and not by your works, then anything that you ever face in trial, anything that you ever face in pain, anything that you ever face in suffering, what you experience on this earth will be the closest to hell you'll ever get. Choose today and live for the one who gave his life for you. Well, the truth of that will change something about our perspectives, won't it? It will change something about our worship. Our culture today is grasping for things to soothe their souls, taking pride in self-reliance, highlighting it and putting it on the, the highest pedestals. That'll be the closest they ever get to heaven. Do you feel lowly today? That's the closest you'll ever get to hell if Jesus is your Savior. Our culture today attempts to create a secure future for itself, not recognizing that it's only Christ that can soothe and secure. If we put our hopes in ourselves, we're doomed before we even get started. I ran into a friend recently. We were out to lunch as a leadership team last week as a, as a team, and, and at lunch I ran into this friend, and I was reminded that he is expecting his first grandchild. And I, I couldn't remember at the moment. I said, now, now, when is your daughter due? And he said, early May. And I said, oh, that's right. You know, my, my birthday is late in May. You should start planning now. Um, my birthday is late in May. And I said, you know, I know better than to wish on an expectant mother a delivery date past their due date. Right? We know better than that. If you don't, you should know better than that. We don't wish that on somebody. I mean, we all love to think like, oh, I hope that they're born on this day. I think her, her, her due date was in the first week, and I'm like, I'm not going to say May 25th again. Mark that date. Uh, I'm not going to say May 25th is when I hope that this child is born. What? How so rude. Do you know what Hosea says? Hosea says about us today if we don't respond to this truth is that we are like a, an expectant mother delaying delivery. It's like a child not willing to go through the womb. That's beyond rude. That is an offense at a holy God level. Respond today. Don't be pregnant with the truth and it not deliver you from yourself. The New Testament says that Jesus worked to save and to save his people fulfilled the promise of a new exodus. It fulfilled the promise that we would be returned from exile. And as in the exodus and as in the return from exile, New Testament believers have come home. 
We don't come home to a plot of land. We come home to Jesus himself. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. 1 Peter 2, 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Perhaps you're familiar with that phrase I used earlier today, an attitude of ingratitude. I heard it a few times in my upbringing. Let's recognize how easily ingratitude is to recognize in someone else and not in ourselves. It's so easy to recognize ingratitude in others. It's so difficult to see ingratitude in our own hearts. So how can we become more thankful? Well, we become more thankful through the simple act of giving thanks. The simple act of giving thanks. That's what it looks like for us to become more thankful, to have a posture of gratitude before the Lord. We give thanks. We recognize every day whatever we have that we appreciate is from the Lord. Including the day itself. Including the the trials or the triumphs that we may face in that day. Lord, we are grateful for this day. This is how our worship began today. We enter the courts with thanksgiving in our hearts. And you know what we should do at the same time? We should learn to tune out aspirational messages from the culture around us because we can actually become more thankful and more joyful in our Lord's in our lives by listening less to the world and listening more to the Lord. Leo, what do you think? Are you up for it? Let's give it a try. Went to Leo during worship and I asked him. The last few weeks I've just had this song in my heart. Not sure if you're familiar with Richard Smallwood. He has a song called Total Praise. I can hardly even say it. Kurt, you might need to look that one up. It says, Lord, I will lift my eyes to the heavens. Where my help comes from, you, the chorus sings, you are the source of my strength. You are the strength of my life, and I give my life in total praise to you. It's a beautiful song, but what is more beautiful than anything about it is, it's a declaration of our dependence on Jesus Christ. And I just want to invite you into this moment to worship God with me. That we would be a people who our lives sing this song, even if it's a song that our minds don't know yet. That our, a song would begin to resonate in our lives when we think about the things of God, when we, when we read His Word, when we interact with His people, and it would be something that comes to us and it says, I am going to praise you because of what I see you doing right now. It sees one another not as problems to be fixed coming alongside one another to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. So, I've never sung this song before. 
outside of my office or my car. But if you know it, would you sing it with me? Lord, I 